0: And welcome to Small Town Mysteries, a show where three longtime friends from Massachusetts tell crazy and heartbreaking true stories filled with the extra flair of small town mystery. I'm Kate, here with Christine. Hello. And Rachel. Hello. Bringing you our next episode on the case Utah v. Lafferty. I have already checked, and I don't think either of my co-hosts are familiar with this case, so that will be fun. I'm going to toss it over to Christine first, who will cover our missing person for this week.
1: Okay, so this week I am covering Jeremiah Montgomery. He has been missing since October 7th, 2023 from Las Vegas, Nevada. He is now 12 years old, and he might still be in the Las Vegas or Henderson, Nevada local areas. That is all the information we have. So please check out our Instagram at Pod to make sure that you can see a picture of Jeremiah. That way, if you're in that area or even if you just want to take a look around, you can and see if you recognize him. So contact the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department at one 702 828 3111, if you have any information at all. Thank you, Christine. So
0: I'm going to dive right in. You may not know, as a listener of Small Town Mysteries, that we keep a document that we update with states we have not covered yet. So occasionally I will dip into the document and try and find something that happened in a state that we haven't covered. From my own personal memory, I do not think we've covered a state from Utah yet. This is new ground. So, uh, in doing some research on this, I kept coming across this one case that was referenced a lot as, um, like, a oh, this is the Utah case. Like this is the criminal case in Utah. This is the murder trial in Utah, but I couldn't figure out why it seemed so familiar to me. Like even just like the core details, I was like, I feel like I've, I feel like I'm familiar with this. I could not put my finger on why, and then I realized that every time I read the name of the case, I had this image of Andrew Garfield, the actor, popping up in my head, and I was like, oh, that's where I know it from. Andrew Garfield did an adaptation of this. So today I'm going to be talking about the 1985 murder trial of Dan and Ron Lafferty in American Fork, Utah which inspired a 2003 nonfiction book and subsequent 2022 fictional miniseries adaptation called Under the Banner of Heaven. As I said, the miniseries is fictionalized. Um, Several characters were added, and I will cover a little bit of how accurately they portrayed this case. So I watched the series for Andrew Garfield when it first came out because reviews were rave, and he earned an Emmy nomination For his uh, portrayal of Jeb Pyrie, who is a fictionalized detective who investigated the murders. He was not a real person. I've also previously covered cases not long after they've been adapted for film or television. So I do like to talk about uh, how faithful some of these adaptations are. I did that with the Watcher House case. I really liked that episode. So uh, I'm going to do that again, but not until the end of the episode. So this coverage is going to be based on the case itself. I'll talk about any particular liberties the adaptation took when we get to it. So I'm going to start with some background because to understand what happened in this case, you need a pretty solid understanding of uh, the Lafferty family and Mormonism. The Lafferty family, consisting of six brothers, their mother and father, and the brother's respective spouses, wives, were raised in the Church of the Latter-day Saints, known informally as the Mormon Church. This church is headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, and is known for its adherence to other religious texts in addition to the Bible, such as the Book of Mormon and other documents written by founder Joseph Smith, which he proclaimed to be revealed to him directly by God. It's important to note that even though the LDS Church follows some similar beliefs to Christianity, they are generally considered a completely separate religion, due to the differences in doctrinal beliefs, and some more extreme views held by LDS members. Historically, the LDS church is known for its previous embrace of plural marriage, also known as polygamy, which was officially rescinded by the church in 1904. This means that any LDS members who partake in polygamy in the modern day, such as, like, Cody from the TLC show Sister Wives, um, they would be considered extremists, compared to general LDS belief. So, of course, this is a very basic summary of LDS belief. Uh, There's a ton that I left out, but the central tenet to acknowledge here is that a lot of core LDS beliefs are considered to be more stringent versions of some versions of Christianity with a particular emphasis on sexual purity, patriarchy, holistic health, things of that nature. So, knowing this general background of LDS belief and their strict standards for morality, it's terrifying to know that both Dan and Ron Lafferty, two of the five Lafferty brothers who centered this story, were excommunicated from the LDS church because their beliefs were considered too extreme. So, Dan Lafferty was excommunicated in 1982 when he attempted to take a second wife who happened to be his stepdaughter who was 14. Okay, there's so much wrong with that. Ew, 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 ew. It's a big sentence full of gross.
1: It's also everything gross about it, coupled with the audacity of him to be like, oh, yeah, this is my right. That's disgusting. Yeah. Uh. And he's not even the one whose wife left
0: him over this, for the record. We'll get to that guy next. Yeah, so horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. His brother, Ron Lafferty, was excommunicated the next year in 1983 for a similar embrace of polygamy. And around this time, he told his wife that he wanted their teenage daughters to be, like, multiple wives at some point, which caused his wife to divorce him and take their six kids to live in Florida. Well, good for her. that That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Very much good for her. But he was unable to contain his anger about the situation. And we'll see how that plays out going forward. So as Dan and Ron grew more deeply into their extremist beliefs, those around them grew increasingly uncomfortable with their beliefs and their involvement in the church, uh, which harmed both some of their familial relationships and those with the greater church community. In 1984, Ron and Dan Lafferty created an offshoot sect of the LDS Church known as the School of Prophets, claiming that the original LDS Church had betrayed its own founding principles by disavowing plural marriage and allowing the admission of Black members. So not only are they misogynistic pigs, they're also racist.
1: Truly the full package. Well, I mean, often they go hand in hand. If you're that close-minded, I don't- one thing, I'm not surprised that there's something else. That's disgusting. Yep. yep. By
0: 1984, around the time that they established this sect of their own, Ron had claimed to have received no less than 20 revelations, all of which he claimed to be directly from God. So this is in the same tune as Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of the Latter-day Saints, who claimed that he was handed down revelations directly from God To share with the people. Religious texts that are strictly adhered to in the LDS church were supposedly revelations that Joseph Smith received directly from God. So he is, in other words, their prophet. At this point, Ron is now claiming essentially that he is a prophet. One of these revelations Ron received in March 1984, and it allegedly called for Ron to eliminate four specific people who were, quote, ...in his way or blocking his path. Two of these people did escape unscathed, and I'm not really going to talk about them at all because they got away with it. Um, They were fine. They ended up fine. The other two of whom were either directly or by pure circumstance of birth, as it were, somewhat involved in his divorce and excommunication from the church. Ron Lafferty tried to recruit all five of his brothers to the School of Prophets many of them were open to the idea. His youngest brother, Alan, and his educated and strong-willed and therefore clearly unbearable wife, Brenda, refused to join. Brenda had been a source of support for Ron's wife in her decision to divorce him and take their children away to safety. Many or all of the other Lafferty wives were subservient to their husbands. Uh, I saw many Articles that referred to them as second-class citizens in the Lafferty family. But Brenda was educated uh, and progressive. She had a college degree. She had a career in journalism. And her husband, Alan, took her opinion seriously. He cared what she thought. So when she, you know, pushed back on the School of Profits thing, he was like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. Ron's wife, as I said, also found support in Brenda. And as such, Ron blamed her specifically and her progressive ways for his wife deciding to leave. Because there was not that sense of support among the other Lafferty wives. It was only Brenda. And for that reason, he fully was like, Brenda is the reason my wife left me. Um, that is not how it works, sir. Yep. So Ron claimed that this particular revelation, the one that called for the removal of Brenda and others which has since been known as the removal revelation, specified that Brenda and her 15 month old daughter, Erica needed to be murdered. So it's not just Brenda. He also thought her 15 month old daughter was in his way, blocking his path, and needed to be eliminated removed those were all terms he used
1: this is i i don't even know what to say guys we are just i feel like our past couple have all been like young kids
0: yeah we're in the doldrums recently (sighs) when it comes to uh content right now we're a little, little little sad a little depressing interestingly Ron told several family members, including his brother Alan, about the removal revelation, but none of them seemed particularly concerned about it. And Alan, th- it gets worse, Alan, who told Ron, I will protect Brenda, no matter what you think you're going to do to her. Um, he didn't tell her that Ron had had this revelation and that thought she needed to be murdered. Oh. So he knew. Yeah. Jeez, dude. That's... This is awful. Um, so just light trigger warning for the next 20 seconds or so. Um, it's the only part of this where I get a little graphic talking about the crime itself. On July 14th, 1984, Dan and Ron broke into Brenda and Alan's apartment while Alan was not home, strangling Brenda with a vacuum cord and then slitting her throat. To make matters worse, they did not simply kill Brenda's daughter, Erica, who was also present. They slit her throat so violently that she was nearly decapitated.
1: Oh my God. Oh my gosh.
0: She Poor was baby. 15 months old. Their own niece. I, I don't understand people. I'm like, what? What? God told him to. That's what he said. God told him to. Because that infant, that literal baby, was standing in his way, was blocking his path, was going to prevent him from being who he thought he had potential to be in the religious world. An infant. The brothers fled immediately, abandoning all plans to kill the other two people, included in the Revelation, and hitchhiked their way to Reno, Nevada, where they were apprehended uh, about a month later in August of that year. Both Lafferty's were charged with criminal homicide, aggravated burglary, and conspiracy to commit homicide. Just five months after the murders, on December 30th, Ron Lafferty attempted suicide in his prison cell. There is legitimate debate about if this suicide attempt caused Ron brain damage that then hindered his capacity to stand trial, which will come up going forward. Uh, And not long after his own suicide attempt, Ron attempted to kill his brother Dan in prison as well. Their trials were subsequently severed so they could be tried separately. And as Dan said, Ron was the brains of the operation and he was merely the muscle. So they thought they stood better chances individually than standing trial together. Both Ron and Dan were tried in 1985 and found guilty of criminal homicide a jury sentenced Ron to death and Dan to life in prison. In 1991, Ron's conviction was overturned due to concerns about his mental competency to stand trial, as I mentioned earlier. This didn't last long. He was reconvicted in 1996 and again sentenced to death. He would remain on death row for 34 years before ultimately dying in prison in 2019.
1: Okay. We've talked about this before, but 34 years...
0: Yeah. Um so not only was he on death row for 34 years, he at the time of his reconviction and resentencing in 1996 chose the method of execution.
1: Okay, what did he what did he choose?
0: Firing squad, which by the time he died in prison was not even a legitimate option anymore. But at the time that he was sentenced it was um but he is one of the longest serving death row inmates
1: uh, in recent US history. 34 years is a long time to be on death row. That's a very long time. I just, at that point, it's just you're in prison for life. In prison. You just died in prison. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean. Good. Great. And it's more expensive to keep yeah. people on death yeah. row. So, wonderful. Cool. I love where my money is going. The mandatory <laughs>
0: appeal process is insane habeas corpus petitions, everything. Oh my god, the money that goes into it is crazy. Anywho, (laughs) if you really wanted to, you could set me off on this, but (laughs) I'm going to move past it. So Dan, who did express remorse to Brenda's family in letters he wrote from prison, Uh, remains in Utah State Prison, serving two subsequent life sentences, and he will die in prison. Even though he's not on death row, he will never, never see the light of day. John Krakauer published his book on this case, entitled Under the Banner of Heaven, in 2003, after interviewing both Dan and Ron Thoroughly. Ron, for his part, staunchly believed that the book itself was part of his religious callings that it would serve as a way to reach others with the revelations he received from God. This is too much. Several investigators and lawyers associated with Ron's retrial, however, feel that this was more of a crime of passion than a result of religious extremism. That Ron decided that Brenda needed to die for defying his authority, not because God told him she was an obstacle to his success.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can see that because especially coming from that point of view where they very much view their wives as, I don't know, like another thing that they just owed. Mm -hmm. I could see her being like, you know, this person I'm supposed to owed who belongs to me decided to take herself out of the situation with the kids. So therefore, like, like she's by. Exactly, so
0: the person who encouraged her to leave has stolen something from him, basically. The miniseries adaptation of Under the Banner of Heaven was released in 2002 to critical acclaim, despite some criticism from the LDS church and its community for the series' focus on the crimes of extremists, which were embedded within depictions of the founding of the church and its primary beliefs, which many thought perhaps put an unfair onus on the LDS church for the actions of Ron and Dan, even though they had been excommunicated prior to the murders and were by all definitions considered religious extremists. Um, I I do think that's a pretty valid concern, um, especially when you do consider that many investigators thought that religious extremism really wasn't actually the basis of these crimes at all. That does put an interesting turn um, to the fact that the show focused so heavily on the influence of the LDS church. In addition to Andrew Garfield's portrayal of the detective on the case, Wyatt Russell, the son of Goldie Hahn and Kurt Russell, um, and I have a bunch of exclamation points there because he's very talented, was also praised for his performance as Dan Lafferty. Definitely worth checking out. He was a standout to me. More overlooked, however, was Daisy Edgar-Jones, who portrayed Brenda Lafferty, Sharon Wright Weeks, sister of Brenda Lafferty, claims that the series is heavily fictionalized, saying that the series focused too heavily on the blood and gore of the murders, killing Brenda all over again, and reopening a wound that will never fully heal. Sharon claims that Brenda was a loving adherent of the LDS church, but not a fanatic as depicted and that the show's slant against the LDS tenets is obvious and misleading. Sharon is also one of many who believes that the religious extremism explanation was merely a convenient cover-up for Dan and Ron's violent crime of passion, one, of course, that ended the life of her beloved sister and niece. According to Sharon, this was not a religiously motivated crime, as the Lafferty's would have you believe, but rather a crime of jealousy and revenge. Not divine in nature, but purely human at its core. Sharon is not the only one who believes that the miniseries and the book on which it is based puts far too much emphasis on the religious beliefs of the murderers and not enough focus on the actual reasons that led to the murders. Um, There is some explanation here that one of the producers, Dustin Lance Black, was facing and um, sort of confronting his own religious trauma when he created this series, and that that may have led to um, the way that the LDS Church was depicted. In a way, the series serves to do exactly what Ron thought the book was meant to do, which is just read the word of his religious cause, moral or not, to a greater audience. Both the book and the series controversially villainize the entire LDS Church for the actions of the few, well, tossing aside the brutal responsibility due only to Ron and Dan Lafferty,
1: I get that complaint, like you said, in a way, it is taking some of the responsibility off of them if they're so much focused on the fact that like the church did this, like the mm-hmm. church is what encouraged them to do this, but in reality, like it's it the entire blame should be on these horrible people, right. Specifically, Brenda's sister Sharon also despised how the
0: show depicted Brenda's wedding to Alan as eerie, dark, and creepy. Uh, In reality, Sharon says, Brenda loved every moment of her temple wedding and believed the rite of marriage in the temple to be sacred. The show, she insists, exploits stereotypes about LDS marriages and the temple in general to foreshadow Brenda's impending doom. Having watched the show, absolutely. That is a very true statement. I wouldn't know a temple marriage if I tripped over it. But I agree with the characterization as eerie, creepy, dark, sinister. Definitely played up for the effect there. Sharon remembers Brenda as a former beauty queen. Stunning and gorgeous, her words. Never without her trusty and fashionable bell-bottoms. And her favorite high heels that she wore to school every day. Love that. Same. Brenda was a woman before her time. Empowered in an era where many women weren't. And even bolder and brighter than her character on screen could ever be depicted. And she is dearly missed by those who loved her.
1: So sad.
0: So a little quick hitter. But I, especially after reading what... Sharon had to say about the show and the book and their portrayal, I didn't feel right going into every single gory detail of those murders. Because I originally did. You know, I originally was like, yeah, I'll I'll cover, this is a true crime podcast. I'm going to cover the crimes. And I realized that the much more compelling narrative here isn't how they brutalized the bodies of this young woman and her infant daughter, it's why. It's that they want you to believe that the church influenced them into this. They want you to believe that he sincerely thought that God told him to do this. That's what he wants you to think. And it's all a bunch of bullshit. And that, to me, is far more compelling than any detail about the murder could ever be. And I just, after reading what she had to say about the crime and the situation in the show and how it dug up those old wounds i just cut like a whole page out of my episode and yeah. kept it to the bare minimum because brenda lafferty was a real person and she is what got lost in these adaptations her that's not right like that's it's not she i mean the show starts with her death that's like the first scene of the show and then you only really see her in flashbacks it's not We're a victim-centered podcast. Yeah. And it's hard to talk about this case without talking about Ron and Dan and their background. But you also need to focus on Brenda. She was a real person. She was only 24 years old when she died. She had a whole life ahead of her and a beautiful young daughter who unfortunately died with her. And she deserves that honor and that respect. And that's not what she got through the show. And having seen the show, having enjoyed the show, truthfully... She did not get that respect that her story deserved. But I hope that I could do something to honor her today and acknowledge that life that was lost.
1: Yeah, that's hard. I feel like it is hard because oftentimes there's two opposing viewpoints, I guess, where there's obviously a good amount of people who don't really want to hear about this especially I mean it's completely different when it's fictionalized but I'm talking about just in the news or Mm -hmm. stuff like that that don't really want to hear about it because like she said it reopens wounds and it's traumatizing like every time but then of course there's like the the other people who we've covered instances of families where they just want to get you know the word out and they just want everyone to talk about the case and whatnot So I feel like it's interesting, the two sides. And I do think about that sometimes, like when I'm covering a case is obviously we're a very small podcast and you would have to look it up, I feel like, in order to come across this. Mm -hmm. It's completely different when a very popular series is covering the death of a friend or a relative. And right. you can't really escape it. And I'm sure that some insensitive people in her life probably asked her about this. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like you can escape it when it's that popular. Right. So she did address that
0: specifically. And she said, um, I paraphrased about like the reopening of the old wound and whatnot. But she said specifically that it was a weekly show. So it came out weekly on, I, I believe, a and I watched it on Hulu. Um But it was a weekly release. It wasn't a streaming dump, which meant there wasn't, like, this one, like, or two weeks where everyone was watching it and talking about it. It was on every week. And every week, there was this flurry of people asking her about it and the media wanting to talk to her and see how she felt about it. Every single week for the whole however many episodes, I think there were eight or nine episodes and she just said that this is a decades old case and having to rehash it like that every single week i cannot imagine how debilitating that would be to someone who's trying to just live a life and honor their sister's memory and know that this depiction starts off with her sister's dead body so i did i did have that ethical conversation with myself about me covering this. And I've seen articles before that go around about the ethics of true crime podcasting. There's a lot of people that argue that it's never ethical, that there's no considerate way to talk about someone else's murder. I see where they're coming from mm-hmm. as a true crime podcaster. I, I get that. I understand that. And I can't imagine how it would feel to have the worst moments of your life dragged out into the open, sporadically, randomly, every now and then. Which is why I hope that I was able to focus this episode in a way that did honor Brenda, and gave her the starring role in her own story, as it should be. And not the story of her murder, but the story of her life. That she was bold, ambitious, she had a degree from Brigham Young University, had completed an internship at a news station. Had higher career aspirations than some women I know now. That she lived her life in a way that should be remembered. And she should not just be remembered in her death. So I hope I have done justice to that and to her memory. Yeah. That was beautifully covered, Kate.
1: Yeah, that really was.
0: That's the story of Utah V. Lafferty. And the bold, brave, and incredible woman who led a man to just truly fuck everything up. Well, thank you. We are all speechless again.
1: (laughs) I'm looking at you guys. You're looking at me and we're all quiet. (laughs) I was going to say, as they do, but I have a lot of our listener base is men. Surprisingly. surprisingly. But you know what's interesting is that we haven't gotten a DM. Not most, but a good amount. There's a good amount of men who listen to us. We usually get DMs from women. Yeah, we
0: do. Yeah. Almost across the board, Um, that seems to be who interacts with us.
1: Maybe uh, we should switch it up. If you're a you man, you DM us on. If you're a man, DM us. If you're <laughs> a man, DM us. Uh,
0: first of all, why? Second of all, DM us and tell us why. First <laughs> of all, why? Um, No. <laughs> but no one ever DMs us. We, I, I, we had one guy who I can think of off the top of my head who DMed us. Mm-hmm. And I think Christine knows exactly what I'm talking about. And he didn't DM us with any like case suggestions or oh my god, I love your podcast, or here's a picture of my dog, which for the record, keep sending those. I love it. Someone sent me a picture of a snake. Ah! I actually was so happy. No, he DM'd asking for our personal Instagram accounts.
1: Yeah. And
0: (laughs) none of us responded.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you're a guy and listen to us and you enjoy the podcast. Yes, leave a review and prove that not all men leave bad reviews. You can leave a good one, please. Thank you. Well, you can prove them wrong with one little
0: sentence. Hey, this podcast was pretty cool. Five stars. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> leave exactly that review. Oh my god! Imagine if we got like you three reviews saying that exact same Debatum. sentence.
0: Yeah, it's like um. One of our friends left a review on the podcast and she spelled our names wrong on purpose. So it wouldn't look like it was coming from someone who knew us. And I said, (laughs) that made it worse. I was like, you make it so obvious that it's one of our friends when you spell our names wrong intentionally. But she was like, no, no one will ever know. And I was like, we know. Um, Because as soon as I read it, I was like, that was (laughs) Um. Anyway. Leave a review some of you have really, really nice things to say about our podcast. This is something we do out of our uh, love of our own hearts. This is a labor of love for us. It's a passion project. We don't get paid for this. We actually pay out of our own pockets every month. So our research may not be perfect. We may have small editing issues. These are mistakes that happen when you are not professionals and you also all work full-time jobs and do a podcast on the side in your free time. So we appreciate everyone who listens to us and values what we bring to the podcasting community, even though our contributions may be small. Thank you for enabling us to keep doing what we're doing. We're now 86 episodes in, getting close to 100, which is, that's crazy. I know, I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah, thanks for sticking with us. And thanks for your support. And thank you for your DMs of your dogs. And cats. And, And cats and snake. This has been spelt on Mysteries. <laughs> I've been Kate. <sighs> and I'm going to wrap it up now because I'm getting sentimental. So.
1: All right. Come spiral with us next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.